Hello everybody and welcome to this very special 5 by 15 event and thank you so much for, to everyone for being part of this this evening. Tonight we are delighted to be joined by two leading scientists and science communicators as we delve into the mysterious world of consciousness with groundbreaking neuroscientist Anil Seth who this evening is in conversation with the broadcaster and hero of science communication Adam Rutherford. So we're here to discuss this incredible book, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness, um, an instant Sunday Times bestseller. And the book draws on Anil's original research and put forward an exhilarating new theory of how we experience the world. So I hope that everyone will pick up a copy from New and Books if possible, the details for them are in the chat. So let me quickly introduce our speakers this evening. It is such an honor to have them with us. Anil Seth is a leading British researcher in the field of consciousness science. He's Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience and co-director of the Sackler Center for Consciousness Science at the University of Sussex. He writes regularly for the New Scientist, The Guardian, the BBC, and has been interviewed on radio four many times. His TED talk on consciousness, he's just told me, has been viewed over 12 million times, which is unbelievable. In conversation this evening, we have the wonderful Adam Rutherford, a, hist uh, a writer, a scientist, and a broadcaster, and his latest book is How to Argue with a Racist. He presents BBC Radio 4's Inside Science, and his forthcoming book, which we're really excited about, is Rutherford and Fry's Complete Guide to Absolutely Everything. So keep an eye peeled for that. Please don't forget to put your mind, there it is, <laughs> put your mind-bending questions in the Q&A box, and we will come to as many as we can towards the end of this session. I will disappear into the virtual wings, and I will say welcome, Adam. Thank you so much for being here, and over to you. Well, thank you, Daisy. You've done my job for me already by introducing um, our brilliant speaker tonight. Um, so as, as Daisy just said, Anil is, um, well, he's Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Suffolk, at Sussex, not Suffolk, honestly. Not Suffolk. I'm from Suffolk. That was a Freudian slip. You can perhaps explain what happened in my head when I made that error just then. Um, but to my mind, I think what's really important about Anil's work is that he's one of the He's one of my favourite scientists to talk to about any subject, but in a field where a subject which has been enmeshed with some of the deepest thinkers for the whole of history, because it is about questions of our who we are, how our thought process work, the fundamental question of consciousness, mostly have been tackled by philosophers and artists and writers for the last several thousand years. And scientists, you know, want a slice of this pie. Um, but that has meant that in the last, well, I guess, couple of hundred years, there's some quite... Um, well, some interesting work, but not necessarily good work has gone into trying to understanding this whole sense of, you know, who we are. And I think Anil is one of the few scientists who really has got a very clear sense of how to address some of these questions. The book is 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 absolutely superb and I cannot recommend it enough. Um, uh, and as Daisy said, top 10 bestseller mates <laughs> first week. I mean, that's I just the best Amazing. thing ever. So huge congratulations. Um, so we're going to get stuck in, uh, as Daisy said, we, me and Anna are just going to talk as we normally do in the pub um, and stick questions in the chat. I'll be looking at them and I, I, I might, might address some of the questions as we're going along or um, or may just, might just wait until the end. But do stop us if there's anything that you want clarifying or if there's any interesting questions that uh, you want to ask as we're going along. 
before we start talking about the science itself, I've got two sort of background questions. The first is that getting cover quotes when you're an, an author is a sort of, it, it, there's an art and there's a skill and there's luck to it. And um, I, I, the top cover quote on Being You is from David Byrne, who describes this as a brilliant beast of a book. Now, that's David Byrne from Talking Heads. That's right. Well, it was going to be you, Adam, until I got the quote from David Byrne, and then you got relegated to a different part of the, part of the I'm, cover. I'm very, very happy with that. How the hell did you get David Byrne to read and comment on this? Well, I'm, I'm, so I'm, I've actually met him a couple of times. He, he uh, as well as being the obviously the founder and pioneer of Talking Heads, which is one of my remains, one of my favourite bands of, of all time. Although rather distressingly, a number of people in my lab now when I was so excited to get David, but they, they'd never heard of, of Talking Heads. So that's, that was you know, a moment of tragedy for all of us. Um, instantly. But as, as well as being this sort of consummate musician, he has, turns out, a very deep interest in, in perception, in self. I mean, in, in a way you can understand that because from his, his artistic oeuvre is so diverse and, and so interrogat interrogative about human nature. Anyway, I won't gone too long but he was doing a uh, a project called theater of the mind which was supposed to be a kind of public engagement extravaganza about neuroscience and perception and it was partly supported by the welcome trust and one of the hats i wear is a an engagement fellow for the welcome trust so i was brought into a meeting uh, with him in london a few years ago and and we stayed in touch a little bit uh, after that and he very kindly agreed to to read the book and actually read it. I mean, the other thing is getting cover quotes is to get them from someone who is not only willing, but actually reads the book and digests it and comes up with, with something that shows that. That's that's really uh, phenomenal. So I know I was incredibly happy about that. Yeah. And we had a nice fish and chip lunch in Brighton over the summer uh, to talk about it. Yeah, well, that is, um, that's pretty super cool. Um, and I'm very, I want to ask you about the engagement stuff in a bit. Um, but before we get into the science and before we get to those sorts of ideas, just for the for for everyone who's watching, which numbers in their in their hundreds. So it's a you know hello to everyone out there. Um, can you just give us a sort of potted biography? You know how how you got from there to here, and and what you know your interest in consciousness and neuroscience and computational biology and stuff. I got this. I got from there to here slowly, and I think it was always just by rem reminding myself that I was interested in consciousness, that this was the central interest. Uh, it was not always possible to pursue that directly. In fact, early in, in my career, or certainly in my education, I just didn't anticipate it would be even possible at all. It was just, okay, that would be nice. Um, but I, as a kid, I think like many of us, I wondered about consciousness. Who am I? What happens after I die? Who was I before I was born? How does consciousness happen? And just trying to retain that interest over the years, was, it, was not, it wasn't easy. I mean, the education system isn't set up to do it. And when I was doing my undergraduate degree at Cambridge, it really wasn't on the menu. In neuroscience, it was not there. In psychology, it was sort of a little bit disreputable still. But there's, there's a big transition happened in 1990 around then. There's that quote that you've got at the beginning. I'm trying to find it now by one of the one of the top um, psychologists. Can you remember it off the top of yeah, your head? Yeah, it's Stuart Sutherland, and I do yeah. use it. And he was actually founding professor of psychology at, at the University of Sussex, uh, not Suffolk. Um, and he says, consciousness is a fascinating but elusive phenomenon 
it is impossible to specify what it does, what it is, or why it evolved. Nothing worth reading has been written about it. And this was in 19, I think 1989, so quite a while ago, but not in the dim remote history of everything. It, and that was that was from the that was in the International Dictionary of Psychology. So that's that's what you're starting with. And then I remember in the early 90s, there was I, I first read this book by Roger Penrose, who was a brilliant mathematician, of course, and, and recent well-deserved Nobel Prize winner, um, called The Emperor's New Mind, which for me almost put me off big time because it was basically trying to come up with this quantum mechanical explanation of consciousness. And I just got very confused. Uh, fortunately, at the same time, I read Daniel Dennett's Consciousness Explained, which doesn't explain consciousness, but it did an incredibly good job of just motivating the possibility of explaining at least aspects of consciousness. And Dennett, with other philosophers, I think were at the, the vanguard of this integration of philosophy with neuroscience, with psychology. That's been absolutely central when you're dealing with a phenomenon as as mysterious apparently mysterious is consciousness i don't think you can do it through one discipline alone and so the trajectory i've had has been in just deliberately uh multidisciplinary and it's it's involved philosophy neuroscience psychology computer science um mathematics uh, all of these things because it's really the questions that matter and the disciplines should organize themselves around the questions yeah, all right. Well, so take us through some of the history as well, because you, we're at this point where, as you say, there's a lot of fusion. There's a sort of renaissance of of ideas about the whole concept of consciousness, which, you know, which itself is a difficult thing to define. Um, but part of your work and what a lot of what you describe in the book is adding an experimental aspect to this. Yeah, so we talk about what's actually happening at a neurological level um in our brains when we're experiencing ourselves but but just sort of, sort of take take us back because there are some very, very key sort of moments in the history of philosophy all the way up until the well till now um yeah. and there you know people like Descartes have spent a lot of time thinking about this and and models of how our brains and our bodies work together or separately have been have come and gone um so, so just give us an give us a potted history of of this it does depend how far you want to go back, but I guess we can go back to, to Descartes. It's a usual place to, to start. And he, he emphasized, he really crystallized this idea of the mind being separate from the body and consciousness, the rational, um, cognitive, thoughtful aspects of consciousness that, that he thought of as distinctively human being, being separate from the body. And this was partly at the time he was writing. He gets a lot of stick, poor, poor Descartes, but he was writing at a time where there was a lot of religious danger in, in naturalizing or, or coming up with a scientific explanation for things that were thought of as close to God, like human rationality. But by dividing the universe into two completely def different modes of existence, uh, what he called res extensa, which is stuff that things are made of, whether it's tables or chairs or brains and bodies, and res cogitans, which is the stuff of of, of mental existence, thoughts, and conscious experiences. If you divide the universe into this way, you have Cartesian dualism, and you have the problem of how you put the two back together uh, again. And so that division has framed people thinking about consciousness for better or worse, probably for worse ever since. 
in philosophy, you have then all these different different positions you can take. You can you can remain dualistic. You can be panpsychist and say consciousness is fundamental and ubiquitous. It's it's everywhere. You can be what's called illusionist and say that fact we're completely mistaken that there's anything really special about consciousness it's just really how uh, organisms are disposed to behave in particular ways and, and there's nothing really complicated or complex or mysterious about the redness of red so there are all these different positions i tend to feel that consciousness is real there's a there there and just to be clear about definition for me consciousness is any kind of subjective experience whatsoever doesn't have to be a complex thought. It doesn't have to be a language. It's, it's not the same as intelligence. Uh, it's just any experience whatsoever. Um, and then how do you try and resolve this, this problem? David Chalmers, famous uh, Australian philosopher now lives in America, basically relabeled Descartes' idea as the hard problem of consciousness. How can any physical mechanism give rise to any subjective experience at all it seems objectively unreasonable that it should he said and yet it does so that's the hard problem the easy problems for Chalmers are all the things that brains do on bodies that are not related to consciousness it can be very complicated things but not related to consciousness and then in practice to try and get around this people like Francis Crick uh, who, as, you, as people will probably know, the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA with, with James Watson and Rosalind Franklin, um, came up with a very pragmatic strategy of just saying, okay, look, we know in practice that consciousness, at least as manifest in humans, has a lot to do with the brain. You, know, you change the brain, you change consciousness. So let's look for correlations between what happened in the brain and what happens in consciousness. And the development of modern neuroimaging, like functional MRI, allowed this to happen so you can start to draw correlations now correlations are not theories they're not explanations and so they're only part of the story but they serve this really crucial at the time uh pragmatic goal of allowing people to do research on consciousness even though they weren't going to solve you know the cartesian divide or, or the hard problem and the story of consciousness science i think since then has been to try and go beyond correlations to try and build explanations that really give some insight into why specific patterns of activity in the brain and the body are associated with specific kinds of consciousness so we we're taking a you know predictably in a sort of empirical a physicalist view that um that moves us away from the well, panpsychic is, is panpsychism is one that you mentioned, which is the notion that, that, that consciousness exists in some sort of ethereal plane, and it's, and it's a universal property, and that we just sort of tap into it. And I'm, I'm I know that that is an easy idea to mock because mm. it's it's sort of inherently supernatural. But but I think that you you know I think it's worth considering before parking, right? Yes. Yeah, we can consider it. Um, no, it's it's not a silly idea. It's sometimes it's it is sometimes mocked as being crazy, but it's not. It's important. I mean, it's got a long uh, philosophical tradition as well. I and I think I can't quite remember. I think it was Whitehead. No, it wasn't Whitehead. I won't want to make it up. Um, but who is the who is the? Uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, but it's certainly it's got a legacy. It's it's got a history. And it's not silly because there are certain things that are fundamental in our best phys uh, physical descriptions of the universe. Like mass energy is, is sort of fundamental. Um, so why shouldn't consciousness also be fundamental? 
Uh, I mean, the issue for me is, is firstly that it's wrong, it's wrong to understand it as something like saying, oh, my table is conscious and my table is having some sort of experience a bit like mine or that an electron is, is somehow having an emotion of sadness. No, that's not what panpsychism says. It just says that uh, you know, my, my socks are not conscious, but they're made out of things that are at, at the most fundamental level. The problem with panpsychism is that it's, it's, not, it's almost by design not testable. Mm-hmm. Most versions of panpsychism say that consciousness is the intrinsic essence of things rather than how these things uh, manifest in, in interactions. And so you, you just, you can't therefore test it and it doesn't lead to testable predictions either. So, and it doesn't explain anything just to say that consciousness is fundamental doesn't give me any insight into, let's say, why I as a human lose consciousness under general anesthesia. And if I can't explain things like that, then it's not really the kind of science of consciousness that I'm interested in. Right. Well, it's not, I mean, it's, if it's not testable, it's not really science, but I think it's, it, it, it's often with these types of ideas, we can be a little bit dismissive and I don't think you do. Dis- yeah. well, no, you do dismiss it, but having considered it rather than dismissing it because it's inherently ridiculous. Well, it's more that it's more that yeah, it's been pointed out to me by some prominent panpsychists like that a lot of what I say is compatible with panpsychism. Sure. And it is. That the, but the point is that a belief in or, or taking a panpsychist starting point doesn't lead to any of the ideas in the book. It doesn't get you there. It's sort of compatible with panpsychism in the same way that pretty much everything I say in the book is also compatible with Australia suddenly being called New Zealand. You know, it, it's, it's compatible with that, but it, it doesn't really, add, you're not going to get the story. It doesn't add to the story in any interesting way. Yeah. And apologies to anyone from New Zealand who is currently undergoing some sort of existential crisis now. So um, w- w- in talking about the, you know, this sense of experience and, and trying to attach so, um, so molecular or cellular or neurological um measurable things to the experience of self you sometimes talk about the neural correlates Mm -hmm. of of consciousness which which i think let's get that get get to that in in just a minute because there's another sort of philosophical branch which i think you know you need to interject into this which which comes from thomas nagel so one of the most interesting philosophers of the modern era but he 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 talks about bats Tell, tell us about his bats he talks about bats and he has this very famous paper from 1974, uh, what, what is it like to be a bat? And it's a, it's a kind of, he brings another term that is very similar to this hard problem or, or the Cartesian divide, it's called the explanatory gap. Now, there's, always, there's always a gap between what you can say about mechanism and um, what you can say, uh, and then the nature of subjective experience. They seem to be different kinds of things. And in this, in this paper, Nagel, firstly, he lays out what I think is a very useful definition of consciousness. And he says, for a conscious organism, there is something it is like to be that organism. There is something for that organism, uh, which is quite minimal, but, it, but it's quite useful because it basically ensure, in, it inoculates us against associating consciousness with other things like intelligence and so on. And Nagel's point is, is that um, one of his points is that there will be something it's like for a bat to be a bat, uh, but we humans will never have that experience. I mean, we can we can try to understand it. We can try to draw analogies like, okay, bats have echolocation. Is that more like hearing than like vision, or is it some 
strange mixture of the two. Uh, you know, there are some humans who click their tongues and and um, and can do some very basic form of echolocation. So you can try and imagine, but we can't have the experience that a bat is having of, of, of being a bat. And that's true. And that provides some, I think, fundamental limits on the kinds of insights that a science of consciousness is capable of delivering. But in a sense, that's fine. I think it's it's too high a bar to say that a science of consciousness will convey to us the subjective nature of batness. I mean, that's that's just not something in general science does. It allows us to explain why things are the way they are, predict them, predict their occurrence or non-occurrence, and control them through interventions in, in various ways. And that's just what that's the normal business of science. It's not about instantiating, giving rise to different you know, experiences of different creatures. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course, you know that was the classic essay, but it extends uh, into interpersonal relationships, not just into interspecies relationships. And you know, you alluded to it very casually a minute ago when you mentioned red and the the notion of what it, what red actually means. And that's actually, you know, that's really a central idea in uh, our, I think it's Chalmers who first describes it as ineffable, right? So yes. we, we agree that that something is red, a cricket ball is red by physical factors because of the wavelength of light that's reflecting off it and how it, it responds to our photoreceptors, our rods and cones and how that gets processed. And, and by social consensus, we call that red, right? right? But what it actually feels like in our heads, maybe... Well, two things. One is in, ineffable, so I can't explain it to you. But two is it, it may very well be different between me and you. Right, right. I'm glad you mentioned the cricket ball because I think I did promise on Twitter we'd probably talk about cricket. So yes. we've, we've now covered that. that off. <laughs> Return to it, of course. Um, but you're right. I, I mean, in a way, I don't quite know what to make of this word ineffable. It's, it's a bit defeatist, really, because we can we can say a lot of things about individual subjective experience about there's a whole branch of, of philosophy of phenomenology which is all about how can we best describe uh its internal subjective experience it is a challenge you can't put it on a table and look at it in the same way that you can do with other things in science whether it's a, a pair of socks or an electron um but we can still get data about what people's experiences are like the second point i think is is definitely true and, and important to understand that we are very likely each having different uh, conscious experiences, even if we're looking at the same thing or even if we're exposed to the same environment. And this is, for me, this is, it's, it's worth dwelling on a bit because one of the really interesting things about the nature of our experiences of the outside world is they, they have the phenomenology of of being real. So if I look at the cricket ball, it's not that I suddenly experience a sort of label in my head that's saying, yeah, this ball is red and its redness is a bit like this. I experience the ball as actually being red in a mind independent way. I experienced that, that that ball would still be red even if I wasn't looking at it or nobody was looking at it. And it's because our experiences have that character that we, we experience them as objective mind independent properties that it becomes very difficult to appreciate that other people will have or may have different experiences and because then we use words to if you like collapse a whole range of associated experiences together and if i say it's red and you say yeah it's red you know it, it glosses over and i don't i don't just 
take half an hour to say, well, it's, it's a redness that's a little bit like this redness and a little bit like, no, it's just red, right? So we underestimate, I think, uh, this perceptual diversity, but also it means that it's tempting to think of perception or perceptual experience as this passive reading out of an objective reality. And one of the main themes in, in the book is to, is to pull at that thread and say, okay, redness is not actually out there in the world. Redness is, is, is an aspect of our experience the brain constructs. Uh, it's a way of the brain sort of constructing something on the basis of how surfaces reflect light. And this is not just a neuroscience observation or a philosophy observation. Cezanne said color exists. Color is what happens when the brain and the universe meet. And if it's true for color, what else is it true for? And if you pull on a thread far enough, my feeling, my argument is that it basically applies to everything. All of our experiences are constructed in, 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 in a way similar to how we construct redness. This doesn't mean that things in the world don't exist. And I keep, I think it's really important to emphasize stuff in the world exists. If you stand in front of a bus and it's heading towards you, it's going to hurt. You know, it's not that your mind creates physical objective reality. What it conjures, what it constructs is the way physical reality manifests itself in our appearance, in our, in our experience. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, but, and this is where, you know, so one of the phrases that you talk about, one of the things you talk about quite a lot, which is one of those mind blowing things is how it, it, you just, you just alluded to, it. you just, you know, got some, a few steps into explaining it, but the notion that experience is all illusory because it happens in this senseless space it, you know, the dark of our skulls where we have external inputs and then we construct reality in our heads, which I think is really important. And, you know, one of the ways we can approach this is because we can see what happens when those illusions are changed, either through mm. disease or when they're broken or when you take psychedelic drugs or um, and and that has a that that has an effect, a measurable effect on that supposedly ineffable in, internal experience. Right. It's, I mean, it's really hard. And this is something I struggle with. It's, and I you know, did think about a lot in the book. It's, it's hard to know what the right word is in this case, which is you know, why it's nice to have access to sort of more mathematical theories and, and things that you don't have to work. But illusion, hallucination, controlled hallucination, they all work in some way, but don't work in other ways. I mean, illusion is, is troubling because it sort of suggests there is a, an actual way things are. It's just being misrepresented by us somehow. We're all familiar with optical illusions and like, oh, look, the lines look different lengths, but oh, they're the same length. It's an illusion. Um, is all our experience an illusion? Well, a yes and no, because it's, it's not as if we could, in fact, experience the world exactly as it is. To bring another sort of philosophical anchor in here, I mean, this goes back to at least Immanuel Kant that there's this uh, noumenon, you know, this, this sort of the stuff out there that we can never have direct access to. All our experience is constructed, filtered. It's all, it's all sort of um, created from, we, we experience the world from behind a sensory veil. Uh, so it's the wrong standard to think we could have perceptual direct access to all of objective reality. So illusion isn't quite right. Hallucination isn't quite right either, because it sort of suggests that, again, everything is made up. I mean, I prefer controlled hallucination to just emphasize that our perceptual experience isn't arbitrary. It's very, very geared and, and uh, reined in 
by aspects of what's out, out there. Evolution has made sure this is the case. Otherwise, we wouldn't survive very long. But it's not, it's not through the criteria of accuracy. It's through the criteria of utility. We perceive the world as it's useful for us, not as it is. Yeah, yeah. And, we're, you know, we're fundamentally limited. I'm trying to think of what, what is a useful sort of description i mean we we filter reality right there is an objective reality out there which which consists of an electromagnetic spectrum that of which we can only perceive a tiny proportion of it because that's what we've evolved to well yes and no again i think i think it's it's a, it's a it's this is why it's really hard to get to, to to get these words so filtering again has something true about it so again thinking about visual experience it is indeed true that are the photoreceptors in our eyes are sensitive to just, well, for most of us, three wavelengths, a tiny slice of the electromagnetic spectrum, this thin slice of, of actual reality. But from that, our brain, it's not just we experience three wavelengths, we experience an almost infinite palette of colors. So our experience of the real world is not just a filtered down version of that world. It is a construction built from a subset of what's available in the world. So it's both less than and more than whatever the real world really is. Yeah. Right. And if anyone else's brain is free, fried by this point, then we, we're, we've only just got started. Some, there's some brilliant questions coming in. They're, they're, they're pouring in and they're actually helping, you know, they're relevant to the discussion as it's going along. So let me, um, let me pick up on some of them. One, one of the things I was going to ask you a, a minute ago, actually, when we were talking about something slightly else is that... Um, you start the book talking about anesthetics. Yes. And I think it's such a good framing device because we're conscious some of the time and then we're simply not. And it's not the same as being asleep, right? No, it isn't. It isn't. And if you, yeah, I mean, maybe this isn't something to, to remember after this talk, depends on how you feel about uh, having operations. But you might often, when you go for an operation that involves general anesthesia, you might often, you might be told, you just will go to sleep for a while and then you'll wake up and you'll, you'll, we'll have done our job. It's not the same as sleep at all. It's, if it was, you'd wake up as soon as the operation started. Um, and, but from the subjective personal point of view as well, if you go to sleep, even if you don't have vivid dreams, you're aware and you wake up, you're aware roughly of how much time has passed. You, know, you could be mistaken by a, an hour or so, or a couple of hours if you're jet lagged. Um, but you know it's not 50 years and you know it's not two minutes. Under anesthesia, you're just gone. It's oblivion. Consciousness is obliterated. And I've had general anesthesia a few times. And the second or third time, I really started paying attention to the loss and resumption of consciousness and noticing that there was no divide. I was, there was no, I was, as soon as I was gone, I was back. And that absence of a, of anything in, in between was really powerful because it, I thought, well, what does, what's, what does that mean? And it's clear, actually, it means that, well, that's what it's like to have not been born yet. And that's what it's like, probably to be dead. It's you know, just that there is nothing. And that's, there's a beautiful book uh, by Julian Barnes called Nothing to be Frightened of. And there's a double meaning to that. And I think that double meaning applies to the non-experience of, of anesthesia. And it also shows, putting the scientist hat back on, how closely tied consciousness at the personal level is to what's happening in the brain. And it's a beautiful manipulation. You make something happen in the brain 
and consciousness goes away. You turn a person into an object and then that, per that object, hopefully, usually becomes a person once again. And if you look at what's happening in the brain, it's again, very different from what's happening in, in sleep. And we can start to understand, so what are the mechanisms of consciousness specifically, as opposed to changes in, in sleep stages and so on? Yeah. And so <laughs> what, what, what have we learned from general anesthetics? I know that's a slightly loaded question because yeah. many of us will know that we don't really understand how general anesthetics actually work at a neurological level in a sophisticated way, which, well, tell, tell us. Well, I think you're right. I think that, that it's still, uh, it's an exciting area. And one of the, one of the, I think the joys of the last few years has been just as philosophers have, have developed a lot of collaborations now with neuroscientists, the larger medical establishment is also getting involved. I think when I was starting, it was, it was quite hard to find, you know, anesthesiologists were practicing uh, medics. They were too busy saving people's lives to sort of worry about the philosophy and metaphysics of consciousness. Um, but these days, this, this is now, it's, you know, there are a number, I have a number of, of medical colleagues, anesthesiologists, who share the interest in understanding uh, the brain basis of consciousness and are willing to do experiments and so on. And so what have we learned? Well, that, there's just, it, there's so many things. It, it, what's clearly, so one of the, the experiments or the analyses that we've done looks at how predictable brain dynamics are uh, in different states of consciousness. And it turns out that if you lose consciousness in, in anesthesia, um, your brain becomes much more regular, much more predictable in its activity, both over space and over, over time. Uh, I mean, this also happens in very deep stages of sleep. Um, so there's not a specific signature of anesthesia. I think the main, the main common feature of anesthesia is that connectivity or communication between different parts of the brain just breaks down. You know, the brain is still active, but the different, the ways in which the brain regions interact is disrupted. And that's a very vague thing to say. And, and I think there's still a lot more uh, to be learned about that. So one of the things that, that we're really keen to do is, is look at specifically how information flow alters in the, in the anesthetized brain. We've done this a bit in the psychedelic state and we now want to do it in the anesthetized state. Yeah. Well, before we get to the psychedelic state, because that's a really important part of your work and it's, and it's really interesting in itself. I'm just, just, just concentrating just briefly on, on general anesthetics. Mm. The, it, it's different from sleep in a number of ways, but there's, there's no sensory input, right? In, when you're under a um, GA. Well, is that, is that I mean, right? I mean, is that like a, a big switch that's just been switched off and that, that, it's part of switching off consciousness. So that's one, one of the theories about anesthesia is that there's this, what they call a thalamic switch. So you, so the brain, you've got the cortex, this folded surface, tightly folded surface, which has most of the gray matter, most of the neurons. And then you've got bits of the subcortex, cerebellum and so on. And then you've got these, these small walnut size called nuclei, tight bundles of cells. Uh, one of one region in this area is called the thalamus, typically thought as a relay between sensory input and the brain. And so one idea is that anesthetics, general anesthetics, sort of shut off this relay, stop sensory input getting into the brain. Now, the, I think jury's still out about this, whether it's really that's the that's the mechanism or it's something more, more brain wide. Sense, some sensory input can still get in. 
especially through touch and auditory cortex um, through the ears, but it just doesn't seem to do anything. You know, of course, one of, one of the one of, one technique that I think is still sometimes used is that, again, slightly disturbingly, when people have general anesthetic, they're also often given a, a paralytic agent too to stop the body moving uh, because you don't want all these reflex things happening in the body when you're when you're doing surgery. Of course, this means that if the anesthesia isn't sufficiently deep and you are in fact not unconscious, you are also paralyzed. This is not a nice situation to be in. Um, so there is one technique called the isolated forearm technique where you, you basically wear a tourniquet so that the um, muscle para paralytic agent doesn't go into one of your arms so that if you are conscious, you're still, you're still able to, to raise your arm to sort of denote that, that you're still aware. Because this does happen occasionally, sort of recovery uh, or you know, awareness during anesthesia. It's very, very rare. Uh, but it is a thing. And so then you could report if you, and there are post-operation, you know, some reports of people remembering things that happened during operation, during anesthesia. But again, they're, they're very rare. It's unclear how much of it is, is sort of um, confabulation of what's going on or, or how much of it was in fact that, well, what they were remembering was actually at the fringes rather than in the, the anesthetized state. Yeah, pretty terrifying. I mean, on those, I know it's rare, have those have those types of incidences have they generated any any sort of insight into what is well going wrong in terms of applying the general anesthetic and therefore revealing something about the nature of uh, of our experience i think the main lesson is that anesthesiology is not easy and you have to you know you, you have to get the dosage right too much and it's it's really dangerous for the patient not enough and you risk them waking up uh and here's where uh, consciousness science becomes a really practically important thing it's not just sitting around and, and having new ideas about centuries old problems uh, in operating theaters it's it's really important to be able to measure uh, level of consciousness by monitoring brain activity and there have been this has been going on for a number of years uh, but in a fairly ad hoc way it's just like you know, okay this this particular measure seems to work normally so we'll use this uh, but now we have the emergence of more principled measures of of depth of anesthesia or of conscious level that are based on things like information flow in, in the brain that could allow anesthesia to be administered uh, much more precisely so that we can be more confident that we're not overdosing or underdosing and this is still you know a, a ways out but applications like this have already happened in another case which is detecting residual awareness after severe brain injury people might have very severe brain damage and they enter something that's called a vegetative or vegetative state or unaware wakeful state there doesn't seem to be anybody there from the outside but they go through sleep wake cycles are they conscious are they not there's been methods developed by people like adrian owen who's one of my colleagues now in canada to detect whether people who from the outside seem unconscious are in fact still conscious and the ability to do this is having a very large impact in the treatment of severe brain injury already so this is i think this is really important because it's often thought that studying consciousness is a little bit of an armchair luxury it isn't it's really important and it's important in psychiatry as well we want to understand the nature of of uh, distressing experiences that people have in psychiatric conditions well, there's a couple of questions which are not 
which which is sort of relevant to to this part of the discussion. So um, one from Joe and one from Patricia, um, which are sort of related. Joe talks about the subconscious, mm-hmm. and uh, that which well help us to define what we mean by subconscious in terms of its. You know, we talk about it quite casually. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a yeah. remarkably elusive concept, isn't it? It is, and I'm not entirely sure what sense uh, Joe is 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 meaning by it i mean it tends to be a kind of freudian concept when 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 i hear subconscious i i i also hear echoes of freud and the id and the the ego there's also the unconscious which is a more neutral term so i don't tend to think i don't tend to have much to say about the subconscious because i i don't think you know while freud was he was kind of a frustrated neurophysiologist in many ways he really wanted to understand consciousness but didn't didn't have access to fMRI machines. Um, These constructs of id and ego and and repressed desires that explain content of dreams and things, I I don't personally see that they've delivered that much. Uh, There is, however, a very, I think, much more empirically reasonable distinction between, let's say, conscious and unconscious perception, unconscious and conscious uh, cognition. So the fact that if, if if we flash an image very very quickly or surround it on both sides by just visual noise then it may not seem to us like we've consciously perceived the image but if you do it right it can still affect your behavior you can still show that the brain has processed the content of that image in some way and this of course is actually a really powerful method for getting back to the neural correlates of consciousness you contrast two situations where the difference between them is as much as far as possible, just whether there was a conscious perception or not. And then you look at the difference in brain activity. You've got a way of looking at the neural fingerprints of specifically conscious perception. Well, yes. Okay. So, so Patricia's question, which I think is related and and we're sort of teetering around the edge for a while now Mm -hmm. is, is basically about altered states. So what, what can we, what happens to consciousness? What Patricia asks is what happens to consciousness when a person is under hypnosis? Mm -hmm. So let's, let's talk about that. And then let's move on to talk about some of your work relating to hallucinogens. Sure. I mean, hypnosis, actually, I was just on Monday at a meeting at the Royal Society of Medicine, the hypnosis section. Um, it's a fascinating area that I've got much more interested in lately with my colleagues at Sussex, uh, Pete Lush and Zoltan Dienes. It's a very loaded and mildly disreputable term, hypnosis, perhaps even more so than consciousness. And even before hypnosis, we had mesmerism, you know, this idea that you put magnets over somebody and you'd get them to, to do various things. Um, hypnosis has all these associations that it's it's like a trance state or it's something to do with sleep you know hypnosis derives from the word from from sleep it's really nothing to do with with sleep and it doesn't have to involve a trance state at all hypnosis is it's a real thing it's also not just darren brown type massive state stage uh, trickery it's a very stable trait you know just as we have different heights um and as they arrange themselves on a fairly predictable distribution we have different levels of how hypnotizable uh, we are. Some people are highly hypnotizable, other people less so. And if you are highly hypnotizable, what that means is you're just more responsive to what we might call imaginative uh, suggestion. This can be something as simple as like, you know, you give people a suggestion that they're experiencing a mosquito uh, landing on their arm. Um, if you do that in the right way, highly hypnotizable people will, will report experiencing some touch some feeling on on their arm they might report experiencing an auditory phenomenon if you suggest that 
if you suggest it uh, to them. So that's that's so it's 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 definitely a, a real thing, and it's becoming. I think what what we can learn from it is firstly, well, what are the differences in the cognitive architecture or the neural architecture of people that are highly hypnotizable and people who are not? That's still, you know, I think, quite a, an open question. Um, but it's actually also turning out to be a real issue in a lot of psychology research because a lot of experiments in psychology, they, they actually invite you to have particular kinds of experiences. There's this famous one I talk about it in the book, the rubber hand illusion. You, know, you put a fake hand in front of you, stroke it, and you stroke the real hand at the same time. People, some people have this experience that the fake hand is somehow their own. But of course, there's, there's quite a strong suggestion that you should have that experience if you're doing that experiment. And so it turns out that people who are more hypnotizable indeed experience that, that effect more, more strongly. Yeah. I, I mean, it's making me laugh this bit of the conversation because um, I think the last, we've done a lot of media together. Anil's been on, on various programs that I've made uh, on, on Radio 4 particularly. But I think the last one was when we did hypnotism on Curious Cases which is a program I make with Hannah Fry. Ah. And they did, I think we were talking more generally about consciousness, but they got a hypnotist in and did us both. And both of us as sort of arch rationalists were like, yeah, come on, this is, let's just, let's, let's stop pretending here. Um, and Hannah was indeed absolutely resistant to it and just, just was unhypnotizable. But I, it turned out that I was... <laughs> And it was quite funny because when you talk about the creativity, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> she presented me with a scenario where I was asked to um, uh, pitch a new Marvel superhero to Stan Lee. That was the, the that was the scenario. Oh, and, okay. And I came up with a Canadian man with a raccoon's tail and a big moustache, and that was it. That was it. You know, so my my even under hypnosis, my levels of creativity are just absolutely pathetic. Hmm. Anyway, so going on going on from from hypnotism, which I know is hmm. is a it, it does have this this reputation as being slightly dis, well hmm. disreputable, hmm. very difficult to test, and associated with sort of almost magical qualities. Hmm. But I think there is something of interest for scientists in there. Hmm. The, then the next stage. Or, or a related stage is talking about altered states through through hallucinogens. Mm -hmm. Now, what can we learn in a scientific setting from changing our perception of the world using narcotics? I would group psychedelics more with anesthesia in terms of the sorts of insights you get rather than with uh, hypnosis uh, or suggestibility. Um, and partly because the way we both anesthesia and psychedelics, you administer a, a, a chemical, a compound of some sort, something that acts at the very low level on the circuits of the brain, and it has a dramatic effect. In the case of anesthesia, you lose consciousness. In the case of psychedelics, you don't usually, but your conscious experience changes in, in very, very dramatic uh, ways. And so in both cases, you've got kind of two ends of the spectrum here. We know quite a lot about the very local action um in anesthesia we know the sort of the neurotransmitter um mechanics of anesthetics they act on these so-called gaba receptors in in particular ways and other things too and then in, in psychedelics same we know they work primarily on something called the serotonin 2a receptor uh, but then 
And then we know at the other end, we know what happens globally. We lose consciousness or we have uh, hallucinations and ego dissolution uh, and all the other things that, that happen typically that characterize a psychedelic trip. And it's the bit in the middle that we don't know. Like, how do the local effects on brain circuits change global brain dynamics in a way that explains, on the one hand, losing consciousness, and on the other hand, entering a very different kind of, kind of consciousness? And so we've been working, analyzing imaging data from, from psychedelics to try and answer a few of these questions. And what we find uh, is challenging because it's still too, for me, it's frustrating. We're not, we don't quite have the granularity to really figure out what, what's going on. But um, there's one way in which psychedelics and anesthesia pull in different directions that we found. So I said earlier when we were talking about anesthesia that the brain becomes more predictable, more regular in its dynamics. Now, it turns out under psychedelics, it goes the other way. Your brain becomes more diverse. The repertoire of states that it enters becomes larger. The brain becomes even less predictable in its activity. And this can be caricatured a bit by saying, well, if anesthesia is a low state of consciousness or zero consciousness, then psychedelics, isn't that a higher state of consciousness if it goes in the other direction? I don't, you know, I, I'd push back against that description because I've got its all sorts of connotations about the, the merit or the value of these different experiences. But on this particular dimension, it's true that they go in different directions. And I think that that's interesting. It gives us a foothold in understanding the basis of these different altered states. Yeah. And we, we've talked about this a lot in the, in the past that I have a quite a mechanistic outlook on things it's, it's the way my brain works it's the way i look at things it's partly to do with the work the, the science that i've done over the last you know, 25 years or, or however long it is and so when we start talking about things like taking hallucinogens i'm sort of clawing at the fact that we know what these chemicals are and we know how they interact with particular molecules or particular synapses and therefore the next step should be does that help inform us um, uh, you know, when, when it's changed, when you break something or when you alter something, does it inform about the base state, the, the you know, the, the, the sort of normal level of, of consciousness in an unaltered state? So is that, I mean, has that been informative yet or are we not there yet? I think maybe we're not there yet. I think it, it's, it's certainly that strategy is right. Yeah, you, you perturb a system in order to understand it. You want to you know, make it do different things, like anything, you know, you get a new toy for Christmas or whatever. I, mean, I don't get new toys for Christmas anymore, but you know, you, if, if we did, but I, I would like to, um, you, you push <laughs> buttons and you see, see what they do. You, you break it in sometimes and see how it works. So yeah, intervention perturbation is a classic scientific uh, method that can help understand the normal functioning. And I think in psychedelics, one way that's already the case is, at least for me, it shows that uh, perception does have this constructive basis because I can, I can take a psychedelic and suddenly the same sensory inputs lead to a very different kind of perceptual experience. And in a way that makes sense, um, we've all had the experience of looking up at clouds on when there's lots of little white fluffy clouds and you can see faces in the clouds or the shapes of animals in clouds um one aspect of the psychedelic state can be a massive ramping up of that kind of experience where ambiguous patterns in sensory data take very definite and shifting and evolving forms and one can understand or at least make the hypothesis that 
ah, this is happening because the the brain's predictions about the sensory world are are becoming less constrained. They're becoming, you know, they're losing their grip on their causes in the world. So there's a mechanistic basis for understanding like how how and why hallucination uh, hallucinogens might might have their effects. There's just one other point I want to make here that that some of my uh, colleagues in, in London, led by Chris Timmerman, did a study where they they asked people about how their philosophical beliefs about consciousness changed on the basis of the psychedelic experience. Now, for me, it reinforces this basic commitment to materialism, physicalism. You do something to the brain, your conscious experience changes. The thing wears off, you, your conscious experience goes back to normal. It's a, it's a very direct demonstration of the organic basis of consciousness. But actually, for a lot of people, especially if they begin with a, a perspective that there's something intrinsically immaterial about consciousness, about self, then actually a psychedelic trip often reinforces uh, the belief that that consciousness is fundamentally immaterial. It's as if, look, I have suddenly access to this wider universe of experience. So there's something more to consciousness than just uh, the physical world. Um, which I found a little depressing, actually, because I thought this would be really good if it, if it made people a bit more materialistic. But, you know, it doesn't happen that way. No, I, 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 I share your pain. Uh, um, anonymous attendee has just asked a fascinating question, which I think relates to something that I want to talk to you about as well, which is, um, is consciousness possible in the absence of other conscious beings mm. or is it dependent on uh, interactions with others? And I, I think that is a, an interesting question. It also relates to something I'd like you to talk about if you can, which is why do we think that consciousness evolved in, in us in a particular way when it, it hasn't evolved in a similar way in, in bats or dogs or, or yeah. other organisms? It's a really good question. And that there are some, there are some people who believe that a social environment is constitutive and potentially also necessary for conscious experience i don't want to put words in you know in other so there's well there's a one of my actually is a inspiration to me over the years chris frith says something like this i'm not quite sure how far he would go but he certainly emphasizes this social element of the function of, of consciousness and the importance of the social um my, my own view is that for our everyday experience of what it is to be a self, to be a human self, the social elements, the presence of other minds that we infer to be conscious is very important. The way I experience being me is partly refracted through the perceived minds of others. What it, I think I mean that at a very literal level, what it, how I really experience being Anil Seth is fundamentally built, at least in part, from the way my brain is perceiving the mental states of other minds that it, that it infers to be conscious. Does that mean that the presence of other conscious individuals or organisms is necessary for consciousness? I don't think so. Yeah. I think it might be necessary for that specific aspect of being me, but I think it's perfectly reasonable that consciousness can happen without that social element of the self in the same way that people can completely lose their memory, um, lose the ability to lay down new memories. They've lost a very important aspect of what most of us consider essential for, the, for being a person. Um, they, 
They exist in a permanent present tense, but they're still conscious mm. and they're still a self to a, to a large extent. Uh, in infants, human infants, really probably not that sensitive to us. Well, I mean, that's, that's a less good example because they're very sensitive, of course, to their mother and, and their parents. Um, but I just, I don't think it's reasonable. I don't think it's likely that consciousness requires in general requires other organisms and this does bring us to the question of its evolutionary origin right yeah it does because i i mean i think that the, the idea that consciousness kind of exists in in the spaces between brains is mm. is attractive and the notion that that having the types of the human type consciousness that, that humans have inherently uh, might be an evolutionary advantage because I could be, I can begin to imagine what you're thinking or what yeah. you're experiencing, and that may be uh, you know in a social organism that that has clear benefits, especially if you want to eat me or um, do the other thing that is important to evolutionary biologists. Yeah, what's that? Well, we can't do yeah. it um, reproductively. <laughs> <laughs> Um, <laughs> but they talk about the, the, the my, my, one of my tutors used to talk about the four F's of yeah. evolution, which are fleeing, feeding, fighting, and reproduction. Of course, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, I think certainly for social creatures, this is this is almost certainly the case, right? That that ev- social organisms are sense of individuality will be very sensitive to inferred mental states of others. Are they friends or foes? You know, do we eat them or mate with them or whatever? Um, but that doesn't mean that all consciousness requires a social environment. And that I think there's another important distinction here, because another term that often comes up is this idea of collective consciousness, that there's, that there's an aspect of consciousness that somehow goes beyond the individual, that a whole crowd becomes conscious. Now, I'm quite suspicious of this term, but in a very specific way. Being in a crowd, whether it's at a cricket match or at football, or as the, in a, I was at the opera, oddly, I was at the opera the other, the other which is not normal for me, going to the opera. Um, that you're in a crowd, and certainly that gives you a unique experience. The experience of being in a crowd is a unique experience, and you feel very attuned, hopefully, to the minds of others around you. Uh, that doesn't mean that now consciousness itself is spread out in the crowd, that, that there's something for the crowd itself to be conscious. Uh, I don't think that's the case. I think the conscious experiences that any of us have depend are completely specified by the state that your brain is in at any particular time. But certain states of the brain can only happen in a crowd. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the whole, you know, what is your red, my red? question but is, is the sort of controlled environment where people are experiencing exactly the same thing ultimately uh, it, it, you're reducing the parameters that are different between what people are thinking if they're in the same space mm-hmm. i think right so therefore the experience is more aligned if people are having a, a shared experience than if they're having random experiences but that still doesn't get around the possibility that whatever opera you were at that mm. some, some people are enjoying it in a, in a completely different way. Yeah. Even though the sound waves hitting your eardrums are, are literally the same ones. Yes, exactly. I'm pretty sure I wasn't having the same experience as, as other people there, you know, partly because I don't really know what I'm supposed to experience in opera. Whereas at a cricket match or a football match, I have a much better idea of what I'm supposed in quotation marks to, to experience. Um, but I just wanted to return to this just very briefly to this question of, the evolutionary function of consciousness because 
consciousness is not just one thing. It's not you have it or you don't. And if you have it, it's like our normal everyday consciousness. Like infants don't have a massively developed sense of selfhood yet. You know, it takes them 18 months before they recognize a mirror image as being themselves. Um, as we've already discussed, the world of a bat for a bat is going to be very different than the world of a human and a dog or a elephant, kangaroo, whatever you like. Um, for some of these creatures, the social environment is important, but what they all have in common is they need to stay alive. The brain needs to regulate the body to keep things like blood pressure, heart rate, gastric tension, all these things, blood oxygenation within certain fairly tight limits that are compatible with the, with staying, with remaining not uh, dead. And this, the argument I make in the book is all the mechanisms in the brain that allow us to experience the world around us that predict the causes of sensory inputs. So we perceive the brain's predictions. They all have their origin in regulation of the body. Predicting something, predicting how something is going to unfold over time is a very, very good way of controlling thing, controlling that thing. Control engineering tells us, tells us this. The old tradition of cybernetics tells us this. Predictive control is very effective. And my basic outlines of the theory that I describe in the book is that that's what brains are fundamentally for, predicting, regulating the interior of the body. And from that, everything else follows. All the, the way we, we, when we experience being a self, the levels of things like emotion and mood and the basic experience of being a living body, that's the brain perceiving the body in a way that it's controlling it, in a way that's relevant for control. And it's those same mechanisms that become built on and elaborated that provide us with experiences of the world, but they're all fundamentally grounded in the need for the organism to keep the body alive over time. And I think this, this shifts a lot of things and we don't have you know, time to uh, go through them all, but it takes, it takes us away from the metaphor that's, that consciousness is just getting like, running the right program on the, on the wetware of the brain. Uh, to understanding consciousness as very, very deeply, intimately connected with our nature as living creatures. And that was not something I, I, you know, I didn't set out to end up there, getting back to the whole trajectory of thinking about consciousness. It wasn't, that wasn't an idea that 20 years ago, I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to try and demonstrate that or prove that. I, it's, it's just where the work has led. And that's, that's been a joy, actually, to end up somewhere that you didn't expect to end up. Well, that's the point of science. If we knew what the answers were going to be, then you're doing it wrong. Listen, we're out of time um, and I can see people need to get, get on. Um, so I, you know, I, honestly, I could talk to you about this for, for hours longer. And indeed we, we do and will do again. But I've got to wrap up right now. I'm going to hand back to Daisy in just a, a second. Just for the people who, are, who are, are watching, get the book. I mean, it's a stunner. David Byrne described it as a brilliant beast of a book. I described it as... Yeah, pretty good. Um, <laughs> it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's important. I feel like it's an important idea. And, you know, we alluded to this at the beginning that um, <laughs> the 1989 uh, psychologist who said nothing interesting has been written on this subject. Well, I don't think that's true, but it definitely isn't true now. Um, we, we didn't really talk about the hard problem versus the easy problems and, and your free reframing, which I think is super important of the real problem. Um, but there's a, a, a classic essay by Anil on 
uh, Eon, which was one from what, 2016, 16, 17? Yeah, 2016, yeah. yeah. Which yeah, I just think is, is such a such a brilliant essay. It's, you know, it's, it's not very long, it's 3,000 words or so, and it's just, it's it's catnip for people like me. And it's, you know, I think that's really where the genesis of this book comes from, is expanding yeah. that, that into book length. So have a look at that. It's we didn't talk about free will either. I mean, and there's a whole oh, bunch of stuff on free will there. But, you know, if we started talking about free will, it'd be game over. Because Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the point where I want to yeah. take hallucinogenic drugs. Um, so so get the book. Have a look at that essay. Um, and if you can buy it from um, Newham Bookshop, the link is on in the chat that Daisy's put up there. So all that remains for me to say is thank you, Anil, uh, for the book, for talking to me for the last hour. And... Um, and being a, a, a good guy. Oh, thanks so much, Adam. It's always it's always a pleasure. And yeah, you know, I really do mean that. And thank you everybody for for turning up as well. I can just see numbers, I can't see faces. Um, thank you all. Yes, thank you. And thank you, Adam, for that wonderful, wonderful interview. And to all of our guests and attendees for these incredible questions. I know that we could have stayed listening to this conversation for much longer. Anna Seth's book, Being You, is out now. Um, the Guardian has said that it is destined to become a seminal text. And we're so honoured to have been able to be a part of the launch of this book, already a bestseller. Um, thank you very, very much. And for this evening, um, it's good night from all of us at 5 by 15 and see you again soon. Bye.